You're listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We've been in a series called More, which was really about how, following on from Pentecost, how the Holy Spirit gives us more of Himself. And then we've moved into now, really, really, an application of that, which is how the Holy Spirit wants to give us more of Himself every day. Because the Holy Spirit and God's working amongst us is not just this theological abstract thing which may be read about in perhaps dusty Bible college volumes. It's actually something which wants to invade and transform our everyday life. Often we talk about it read, the reality that heaven is breaking into earth, that we live in the overlap between heaven and earth. That's where the whole world is going. The book of Revelation offers a picture of the new Jerusalem coming down, God's government and His love and His life coming down and invading the whole world. That's how this thing ends when, as Isaiah promised, that we have a new heavens and a new earth because both have been transformed as they've come together. So this series is really about, well, how then do you live for Jesus in that overlapping space? How do you live that prayer of Jesus as he taught his disciples that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And so we've been looking at various things, and we're going to keep looking at things. And particularly, we've been looking at such things as, as you know, how the Spirit works through words and promises and so on, and how do we activate our spiritual gifts But today I want to open up a scripture which comes after the coming of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit which occurs in Acts 2 at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls and the new humanity is born and then you have a few verses after that what this looks like in real time. So, We're going to turn to Acts 2, 42 to 47 and this talks about the effect on this church of the Holy Spirit coming as disciples are turned into apostles and this wayward bunch of people are turned into a powerful group of God's ambassadors in the world. So it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the first thing we see here is that this is embedded in not just a a learning of what God is doing. Do you remember Jesus spoke to the apostles, teaching them for 40 days after he was resurrected of the ways of God. The apostles are now passing that teaching on. We have that teaching in the form of Scripture. So they devoted themselves to that, to fellowship, which is more than just community. This is a sense of human relationships coming together with Christ at the center, to the breaking of bread, which we just did, the communion feast, which Jesus taught them to do, and to prayer. Prayer is always central, a foundation, a rock to any renewal that God is doing. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The stuff that Jesus was doing, that the disciples looked on almost in bewilderment, now the apostles are doing this themselves. Jesus taught them. Jesus' plan wasn't just to hang around and do it all himself until the kingdom falls from heaven in completeness. Jesus' model was to train humanity how to actually walk and be Christ-like like him, and you're part of that plan. So then this verse in the middle, which is the one I want to focus on, all the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in Acts 2, we have a bunch of Holy Spirit stuff happening. We've got tongues of fire. We've got people speaking in tongues. We have speaking of miracles here. We have signs and wonders. We have this devotion to Scripture, incredible fervent prayer, this, this awe that is around the people of God, a sense of constant sincerity and uh, sincere hearts and gladness. But the middle of this is one that perhaps doesn't seem as Holy Spirity as the others. But what we have is the Holy Spirit's coming unlocks radical generosity in the people of God. Now, this was essential because where things went from here is this little community that is emerging here in Jerusalem doesn't just stay locked up in Jerusalem. God is actually building something that goes forth into the world, into history, and we are in one of the later pages of that. Scripture, and particularly the prophets, talk of the islands. The islands in the concept of the biblical mind were the stuff that was as furthest away from where Jerusalem was. And this was the places on the map which they couldn't even imagine. This was the faraway lands which explorers from that part of the world had not got to yet. And those islands are Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Australia, New Zealand. The furthest countries away from Jerusalem on a globe. So this journey that emerges from this group of people ends up where we are, on the complete opposite side of the world to where this was happening. So that mission needed to be funded by a radical generosity. And so God gives the disciples this incredible God-sized vision. He puts it before them. They've spoken about it. They've learnt about it. Growing up as good Jewish believers, understanding that God spoke of the day of the Lord when His promises would be met. But now He gives them a new vision. That's going to be met, but it's actually going to be met through them. He gives them a commission in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of every ethne, every nationality. So often what will happen is to any person who starts to take God seriously at His Word, is God begins to put before a church or an individual a God-sized vision. A God-sized vision. As I explained during the announcements then, when I took the invitation to become the senior leader of RED, the earthly realities were not good. We've been a church that had been in decline, that had gone through some serious, various shocks and heartbreaks and disappointments. I took over two locations at that time, one here in the east and another in South Melbourne, and realized very quickly after doing both, I did one in the morning, one in the afternoon, of going to South Melbourne, that I realized that that thing was filled with a handful left of very loyal people, but really it didn't have any sustainability in going forward. We had a whole bunch of work that needed to be done. From an earthly perspective, this was not a good project. This did not have solid foundations. In fact, from an earthly perspective, this probably should have headed into some kind of disaster. 
But what I had going for me that God had given for me was a number of years earlier in a meeting upstairs at a cafe in St. Kilda, God had very clearly said to me, and I had to like believe this in my heart, he effectively said to me two things. One day you're going to lead this church. And secondly, I want you to protect this church in the storms. I was in my mid-20s. Now, I didn't end up being senior leader for a number of years afterwards. But God put a little faith test out for me. Would you lead this church? But there's going to be storms. And you're going to have to trust me. And I want you to protect my church. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stories I could tell about that journey. But what God did at this point was, read as you see it now, as I inherited it, look nothing like the God-shaped vision that I believe God has for our church. Let me tell you also that red as it is now does not look like the God-shaped vision what God has for this church. Red, like any church, is in process. God has potentials and possibilities for this church, for other churches, for what He wants to do amongst the people of God in this city at this time. And they're exciting plans. So God also has a similar vision for you. We become so habitualized as human beings, we fall into ruts, we think we're spontaneous party people who do anything at the drop of a hat. We're actually predictable, and because we're predictable, we get stuck in ruts of thinking, strongholds of the mind. We think that what is now will always be, what has always happened will always happen. But God actually has a God-sized vision for you. I mean, Scripture promises that you'll actually rule in the heavenlies with God. That you were created just a little bit below angels. That you were called to partner with God. That you will have a resurrection body. That just as Christ was transformed and came out of the tomb, that's going to be you. And that's where things are heading. And so God has a vision of you. God believes in you more than you believe in yourself. God's imagination for you is far bigger than your imagination can be. So God puts before us a God-sized vision, whether it's a church or an individual. But then what happens so often, because we live in that space in between God's future coming and the reality now, in that time which is called the last days, the Bible calls it, which is basically in between Jesus's death and resurrection and His return, and we don't know how long that is, but it's this time where we live where heaven is breaking out, but it's not breaking fully. And because we still live in a world in which the effects of sin are still felt, sin has been defeated on the cross, but the effects of sin are still felt, that we then encounter challenges. We encounter challenges. When I said yes to the job at Red. I had the God-shaped vision, but within about four hours of having my first day in the office, I realized the challenges. And the challenges were very real, very kinetic, very sensate. You could touch them, you could feel them, you could see them. They're the ones that made your neck stiff, and you didn't sleep well at night. Now, the dream was nice when I sat there and maybe had a relaxing hilltop vista and a coffee, and I could like not look at the current situation and look beyond but when I sat in my office chair, I realized very much the challenges were there. We have this as well with our lives. Many of us, around 85%, I think it is, make a decision to follow Jesus 
around our 18, 16 to sort of 18, 19, that tends to be the main area where people make lifelong commitments to Jesus, which is why youth ministry is so important. But classically, some people have learned that life is hard by that stage, but lots of other people haven't. And the responsibilities and realities and effects of a sin-affected world often haven't hit us. But then a challenge comes along and all of a sudden, that commitment we may have made at a youth camp or a conference or down the front of church or in the end of a youth service or something in a small group study in those teen years, and there's this sense of, yes, God's going to do all these things in my life. And then all of a sudden, the challenge happens and this interesting questioning begins. So our God-shaped, God-sized, God-created visions then face this challenge. Now, what's really interesting is God allows these challenges to happen. God allows these challenges to happen. I'm not saying He causes them. I'm saying He allows them to happen. And when these happen, the first thing that can happen is because they're so immediate, so real, so raw, is that we can forget to see the God-sized vision. Now, I just mentioned about our current financial challenges. I received that. Um, I was away in the UK and I was trying not to check my email, but I had to check a flight detail and I downloaded my email and I got the email which was sent to me to get when I actually downloaded my email when I was back in my office. So I got the email early and straight away that human thing of like, oh no, I forgot the gotcha vision. I just looked at the challenge. And the challenge begins to fill all of your vision. You can't see beyond it. And very quickly, the God-shaped vision can begin to disappear. Footnote, that's where some of you are. Some of you have had words spoken over you, promises that God still wants to fulfill, but you can't see them because the stop sign is so big and your nose is about five centimeters from the stop sign and you can't see anything else anymore and stop signs aren't opaque. Henry and Richard Blackaby say this, when God invites you to join him in his works, his vision is always his work. There's a difference between radical Western individualistic dreams and God's sized visions for you. When God invites you to join Him in His work, He presents a God-sized assignment He wants to accomplish. Now, this is the key, key thing, continue the quote, it will, be obviously, it will be obvious you cannot do it on your own. Let me read that again. When God invites you to join Him in His work, He presents a God-sized assignment He wants to accomplish. It will be obvious that you can't do it on your own. If God doesn't help, you will fail. You will fail. End quote. If you want to discern what's the difference between a radical Western individualistic personal dream that's not of God, is the radical individualistic dream is actually one that you can achieve by yourself by being more awesome. Okay? I want that goal and I can achieve that by just being heaps more awesome. A God-sized vision is you have no hope of doing it. You cannot do it, okay? You're human and you're a little bit rubbish, but God is not. In, in human dreams, you become more awesome. In God-sized visions, God is the awesome one, okay? Continue with the quote. 
This is the crisis point at which many people decide not to follow what they sense God is leading them to do. They see this as confirmation. The stop sign is a confirmation that therefore the dream is not real. And so it exposes something in us. It exposes that we expect if it's a dream, we're just going to glide on into it and it's going to be all good. And if we have little problems, we're just going to smash them with our awesomeness. So the crisis point at which many people decide not to follow what they sense God is leading them to do. Now listen to this. Then they wonder why they do not experience God's presence, power, and activity the way some Christians do. Okay, you want a definition of cultural Christianity? You want a definition of being a nominal Christian where you're a good regular churchgoer and you sit there and you go and you sort of do the right stuff, but you're wondering why you don't experience it the way that other people do? That's because we create this mediated version, a mediated version of Christianity which accepts some of the limitations of the stop sign. So when the stop sign comes, it's an invitation away from self-sufficiency. And it says there's two choices. You can either pursue the God-shaped vision as a church, so we can go after our financial problems and just ring everyone in the church and do endless fundraising and do manipulative sermons and just continually do offering giving with 72 choruses and we'll be here till nine o'clock at night until you just give in exhaustion, like, take my credit card, I'm sick of this. Like that, we could do that, it's self-sufficiency. Or you can be dependent upon God. You can be dependent upon God. And this is why God allows the stop. The stop is an invitation. It feels like a blockage, but it's actually an invitation. So in your personal life, when you feel this promise that's been given to you about your life, and, and hear me, that might, you might hear that and go, okay, so that's for the people who had some big dream that God's, oh yeah, I've got a mate like that, he's got a dream to provide safe water for everyone in East Africa, oh, okay, those sort of people. Yes, but also, it could be when you're a parent, and you just had a kid, and you watch the six o'clock news, and you're like, oh my goodness, I brought a being into this reality, I'm scared, God, please, please bless them and protect them. That's also a God-shaped dream, a God-sized vision. It could be that actually a God-sized vision around your marriage, children, that God can actually use your singleness, that God can work through your job, that actually God can move you into this place where you continually feel His presence. They're all God-sized visions. But what happens at this point is we face an invitation as to whether we are going to pursue self-sufficiency or dependency on God. Now, Henry Blackaby and Richard Blackaby say this creates something. Whenever God speaks, whenever God puts a challenge before you, you're going to run up to the fact that you can't do it in your own strength. And this creates something which seems counterintuitive to what it should feel like when you're following God. This creates a crisis of belief. Okay, do you get that? God is going to create crises of belief in you and allow that to happen. This sounds counterintuitive. What are you talking about, Mark? Like, I just thought I just believed more and it just all makes sense all the time and it's wonderful and I just keep running forward through wonderful fields singing the hills are alive with the presence of God. 
But actually, if you look at how God works through biblical characters, Abraham, leave everything you know and head out. Abraham doesn't go, whoopee, and just wanders out into the desert. Abraham constantly faces situations where he has a crisis of belief. Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell them to let my people to go. I can't. God can't even speak. God picks a guy who cannot public speak because he wants to create a crisis of belief in him. Because if he picked the best orator in Egypt, and the best orator in Egypt could deliver the barnstorming TED talk of the ancient world, and, Mo- and Pharaoh would go, of course, take the people. Who's going to get the glory? Moses, the great speaker. God will create a crisis of belief in you, and a crisis of belief is different to a crisis of faith. A crisis of belief is different to a crisis of faith. What I mean in that is that the secular world tells us that anytime you have any difficulty in your spiritual life, that therefore, oh, that's proof it's wrong. No. What's so fascinating about Christianity, unlike secularism, is that Christianity actually has a place for doubt. Secularism has no place for doubt in questioning that it is the ultimate way of viewing the world. So, in your faith, you're going to have this moment where you go, hang on, that's the God-sized vision. I don't know if I can do that in my own strength. And what will then come under crisis, and God will allow this crisis to happen, is when you want to do a Christianity that is modified for your own self-sufficiency. That is cultural Christianity. Where Okay, I like this Christian stuff, so I'm going to go in for it 67%. Keep 23 for myself. Or I'm going to go in 82%. Keep 18% for myself. Any percentage that you keep for yourself will be constantly brought under crisis and God will allow you to stay in a place of crisis until you give over from self-sufficiency into dependency upon Him. Because what God is wanting you to do is, it's like a sports team where literally you've got the world's best coach and you're a player, but you're the one who's setting the place. So the coach comes to give his pre-game talk, tactics, and you're like, that's nice. I'm going to do 50% of it, but I want to do this bit. So what the actual point that happens here is where you go, I give up, you are the coach, you run the plays, you set the tactics, you tell us what to do. I give over and you adjust yourself to kingdom life. The crisis of belief's entire purpose is that so you adjust the whole of your life to kingdom life. This is what God said to me yesterday morning. Give the good announcement, Mark, so that we get to the 10% that we can need so we can go on another year for the finances of the church. And I just felt a whisper of the Holy Spirit. Is that kingdom? No, that's very self-sufficient. Very self-sufficient. What's a kingdom goal? And I thought, oh, it's the 25%. Let's survive, thrive. I think I came up with that. Pretty good still human. And God said, I'm, I'm going to give you another percentage. Pray for it. Don't tell anyone. I've got another percentage. That's actually kingdom. Because I don't want you just, just to get to that level where you're just operating and keep doing what you're doing. There's stuff that you're not doing that I want you to do. Because red as it is now is not what I want it to be. We're going somewhere and God has God-sized dreams for His church. So I have to now adjust my prayer life to that. I have to adjust my expectations to that. I've got to adjust the hosts of my heart to that. 
I've got to adjust to kingdom life and get in line with actually how the world really works, which is the kingdom. So at that point, when you realize that you need to adjust your life to kingdom expectations, you then have a key. Now, I got to this point in my personal life. I had a number of challenges in my personal life. Mental health challenge, various personal things. And the human response to that was, have lowered expectations. Have lowered expectations. And I felt God say, no, I've got kingdom dreams for you. You can have a life which flourishes in my kingdom. It may not look like what the world looks like, but I actually want good things for you. And dared I believe that in cynical Melbourne. Dared I believe that when I'm surrounded by pastors who often what they just talk about is how tough ministry is and how difficult everything is. Is it? Yeah, it is sometimes. But what if God actually wants to invite you into a flourishing that happens maybe in the midst of your life in very real ways? And I'm not talking about Lamborghinis. I'm talking about this, this sufficiency that comes purely from God and a dwelling of His presence which leads us to an abundant life where we actually live to the contours of His kingdom. Seeing his glory break out in the most ordinary ways. Seeing incredible victories happen over a long period of time, sometimes in the most small, wonderful, subversive ways, like springs coming up out of the winter soil at the beginning of spring. So, the key that moves you from the realization that you need to adjust to kingdom life and actually start moving beyond the challenge is a simple one, and it's obedience. Obedience. I, as a pastor, for a long time, knew that I needed to study the Scriptures more, needed to pray more, and often, to be honest, I just didn't do those things because I felt I got so much on my plate. And what I actually did is I had to say no to other things and create these spaces where actually I began to get into God's Word. Why? Because He called me to. I had to move into obedience. Why? Because He had called me to. That I actually had to take every thought captive. Why? Because He'd actually asked me to. And when I began to move into obedience and move forward, that's when change happens. That's when we begin to move towards the God-sized vision. When we stop thinking about it just as a theory and actually move it into the practical and actually do the stuff that the Scriptures are telling us to do, that's when you begin to move towards the God-sized vision because God's plans and His kingdom are activated when we step into obedience, doing what God wants to do, not what we want to do. So to experience kingdom life, you have to step into the adventure. And I say it as an adventure because that's actually what it is. Continually resisting God is exhausting and utterly boring. Stepping into kingdom life where you're not in control and God is doing stuff is actually the kingdom life adventure. And the gateway into the adventure is obedience. The gateway into the adventure is obedience. Paul says to Timothy, as he's sending him out to minister to a church, a younger pastor being sent out by this apostle, something around this, particularly when it's in generosity, which we're looking at now. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, self-sufficiency, which is so uncertain, creates anxiety, 
but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Enjoyment. Not stepping into obedience. Anxiety, self-sufficiency, arrogance. Stepping into the kingdom. Enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. This is now talking about something very different, a different kind of reality going on in the kingdom of God, which is enjoyable and actually can create a kind of richness and a richness or a wealth that doesn't come from money and paper bills or electronic funds flying around the world, but actually comes from participating in the kingdom with good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, and this is the killer line, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The life that is truly life can only be lived through a kingdom obedience of radical generosity. Now stop for a second. What this is saying is that if you are not living a kingdom life, if you're not experiencing the adventure, you're not really living a life, is what the Word of God is telling us here. So many of us, and, and, and I've lived this, there's a times where you're not truly living life because you're not stepping into the adventure of the kingdom. And this begins to undo the kind of Christianity where it's about going to church, doing the right things, believing the right things, and then expecting that to be this transformative life. Is it important to go to church? Yes. Is it important to believe the right things? Yes. But there's an extra dimension that so many of us miss here, which is actually participating and stepping into the kingdom life. That is true life. And we're missing out on it. Enjoyment, the riches of good deeds and kingdom life, truly life. So therefore, what we're called to do is we're called to move towards this kingdom life through experiencing kingdom living. Experiencing kingdom living. I remember when God said we were at our old building, which we bought in Orchard Grove, which we still have offices in. Before that, we had a building which we were growing out of. And I had looked everywhere. I looked everywhere for somewhere and couldn't find it. Like I knew this area like a back of a hand, spoken to the real estate agents, known about all the buildings that were for rent, both government buildings, commercial buildings, stuff to buy. I knew everything. And we had to build, we had to buy somewhere. And out of the blue, someone texted me and said, here's this building. And I'd like never seen it, even though it was near my house. And there's this sense of, wow, God's looking after us. We get that building, we, we, we buy it, we get working bees, we redo it up, we knock down walls. And the first, first service there, it's just filled with people. Where did all these people come from? We did, went to two services. We started our Outer East congregation. And then about two years into that, I'm there. People are comfortable. Red's finally got a home. And I was walking after the service out the side door to the bathroom. And somewhere between the side door and the bathroom, God said, you need to move for Red to achieve what it needs to do next, and for me to grow this church as I want to grow it, you need to move buildings. Now, this is a killer request. Hang on. People are talking about they finally found home. We just paid for this building. We just got this vision thing of why we need to do this building. 
we've had people doing working bees, but there's actual sweat in those paint. And you're asking, not literally, you're asking then to move. And you know what? I, had, I knew everywhere. There was nowhere to move. Nowhere to move. And God was like, I'm not going to show you anywhere to move until you announce that you're going to move. No, stop it, God. Why does it have to be like this? Give me the plan. Just email me the plan with simple steps and a change management process. And I'm like, told the board, told the team, told the church. God was asking me to experience kingdom living. God was asking me to experience kingdom living. Then out of the blue, Jeff, our treasurer, sees this building. This building was the result of a 20-year process for this church, Seventh-day Adventist, Nana Warning. 20 years from conception to building. Like, that is a huge process to go through as a leadership. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. Council permits, building, planning, visioning, taking the congregation with, all of this stuff, change management, like such a big thing to take as a leadership for. Okay, we find this building, like I think it was like four or five weeks before they moved in. So we literally swan in like, hey, we can take it on Sunday. Thank you very much. And it's just like, I remember walking in here going, oh God, I'd never even do this building. I'd see, I'd actually come here years and years ago looking as a, as, as a space before they'd redone it. So I just assumed it, what it was was what it was now. Because my imagination was limited by my human vision. And I remember walking into here, it was the size we wanted. It was white. It didn't have signage. It was near the lake. You could walk there for, for picnics afterwards. And I felt God say, Mark, yeah, it's about the building, but this is also about you stepping into kingdom living. He can do stuff that you currently can't see now. He's more committed to his vision than you are. It's just about us getting into alignment and stepping into his way. 2 Corinthians says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. This is a complete different way of looking at the world. We've got to realize that, yes, there is the global economy, the Australian economy, the Victorian economy, the Melbourne economy, the Whitehall City Council economy, where we are, but the kingdom has its own economy and its currency is generosity. The currency of the kingdom is not rand or marks, or francs, or euros, or pounds, or dollars, the currency of the kingdom of God is generosity. God does this so that we will be invited into his work and begin to realize how his kingdom actually works. Because generosity comes from a generous God who has given us everything. For God so loved the world that he generously gave his son. God gave his son. That's why when Jesus sees the widow giving the money, 
and she puts in a tiny amount of coins while the Pharisees and the rich people ostentatiously virtue signaling and putting in huge amounts of money. That's why I think Jesus goes, she gave everything. And that means more than just the actual dollar amounts that she's putting in because God himself gave everything. Jesus was about to give his life. God is incredibly generous. So when we step into heaven is where God's will and way happens in fullness. God is will and way is generosity. When we step into generosity, we're stepping into the way of God. And when we do that, we're participating in the place where heaven comes into earth and it extends the kingdom by funding it. It extends the kingdom by funding it. I just want to end with a story from this satisfied, happy chap. Fantastic beard. Is that the Amish beard? What's the name for that? I'm not sure. The moustacheless beard. This gentleman uh, is George Muller, who was born in what is today Germany. Muller's father was a man of means and wealth who valued money. And he had done well. He was a believing man. He was a Christian. uh, But he was a man who there was a competition going on in George Muller's father's soul between money and self-sufficiency and God. Muller's father had worked hard and thus had attributed and grown enough wealth to actually then create trust funds for his children, which paid them without them having to work. And it was decided that a young George Muller, despite not really having that much of an active faith, would be sponsored from his trust fund to go and study at seminary and become a minister or priest. And when you've got a trust fund and you've never had to work, while this may provide for you financially, often this does something else inside of your soul which can create somewhat of a privileged, spoiled brat. Rich in wealth, poor in character. And this was Muller. Muller goes to, I think it's Haller, where he studied and basically studying seminary. But really what he's doing is he's wagging whenever possible. He's drinking, he's chasing girls and pretty much leading a disparate life. But God comes into Muller's life in a series of profound moments. He slowly and powerfully is converted fully. And what's so interesting is renewal is often going in the opposite spirit to some of the strongholds that have bound you and your family going way back. And to the stronghold of money and self-sufficiency that was over the Muller family is actually the reverse of what God did in Muller's life. Muller moved to the UK, to the city of Bristol, and there God began to give him a heart for many things. For people, ordinary people, to learn the depths of Scripture and to be grown in their discipleship. But the main thing that God put on the heart of George Muller was actually at this time during the Industrial Revolution, the streets of British cities were filled with orphan children whose parents had died. 
This is before the welfare system. This is before the government would look after this stuff and these children were left to basically beg and do petty crime on the streets. And God broke Muller's heart. And so God said to Muller, I want you to provide and create orphanages. Not just one orphanage, but many orphanages. Now what's really interesting is that God didn't say to Muller, go and access your father's money. He actually said, I want you to pray for provision for me to provide the funds for these orphanages. And he placed in Muller's brain a complete reframing of what he was doing. I just want to read from Muller's diary. This is written in the years, this is December, I think the 3rd, uh, in just the middle of the 19th century. I judge myself bound to be servant of the church of God in the particular point on which I had obtained mercy, namely in being able to take God at his word and rely upon it. So there was something bigger going on. This wasn't just about providing for orphans. This was actually about trusting God. It needed to be something which could be seen even by the natural eye. Now, if I, a poor man, now no longer with his father's trust fund, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which with the Lord's blessing might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. This then was the primary reason for establishing the orphan houses. I certainly did from my heart's desire to be used by God to benefit the bodies of these poor children, bereaved of both parents and seek in other respects with the help of God to do good for them in this life. So in other words, he knew this was about the orphans and their need. But ultimately, the purpose of why he felt God was calling him to do this and release generosity was that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it might be seen that God is faithful still and hears people's prayers. Muller realized that generosity releases more than money, it releases faith. God is inviting you with whatever challenges before you to believe in his God-sized vision. But to do that, you've actually got to step into obedience. You've got to begin to experience kingdom life by actually doing what he calls us to do. Red, at this point of time, has been allowed to face the financial challenges that we currently face, not because this is just a hindrance, but because God wants to release faith. He wants to fill our bank accounts, but He also really, more importantly, wants to fill our faith accounts. God wants to fill your faith accounts. God is asking you to step into kingdom life. Let's stand. Father, we recognize that you are inviting us to step into a new reality.
to move beyond our concepts of self-sufficiency, to move beyond our attempts to control and game out what your God-sized visions are for us. We can't do them. We can't do them as individuals and as a church. Father, instead, you invite us to step into a radical generosity because you're a radical God. In Jesus' name now, I just want to ask that whatever challenges are facing people here as individuals, that we begin to move beyond them. We realize that the crisis of belief that may be before us is actually a crisis between our trusting in ourselves and our trusting in you. God, give us the faith to actually trust in you. There are very particular challenges before people, and we want to bring them before you now. And in your name, Father, we want to move beyond them, and we choose beyond, to move beyond them with obedience. We choose to move beyond them by stepping into the experience of the kingdom life which you want us to live in and to be rich in good deeds, to enjoy, to experience. Father, we want to pray that we actually step into the radical generosity that we see of the early church, the radical generosity that has marked the growth throughout the New Testament of the best saints and people of God who have done so much for others. Father, begin to help us to see the world through your kingdom economy in Jesus' name that the actual trading practices of this world, whilst they're out there, we actually ultimately operate by a different set of rules. Help us to see that this currency is actually generosity. Father, I pray not just for generosity for red, but actually pray for generosity be released. We're actually people with need around us, the poor, the hurting, the vulnerable, those who are in need. Father, you have gifted us so we can actually bless them. We thank you, Father. We get to live in this city, in this country, that we really are in the world's richest percentage of people, but you've actually given us that stuff, Father, so we can actually bless others. So in Jesus' name, I want to pray that you release a radical generosity, not just money, but time and words and prayer. Release these things from us, Father. Free us from self-sufficiency, self-focus. We're here to, we're blessed because we're here to bless others. So in Jesus' name, may we now step into the kingdom life that you have for us. Amen. So we just ask the Holy Spirit to come now. Holy Spirit, come now. Come for people whose hearts are stuck at the challenge, who have the stop sign right in front of their face and can't see beyond it. In the Holy Spirit, we just pray that you will help us to see beyond, reclaim those God-shaped vision, those God-sized vision for us, Jesus those words that were given, those prayers that were prayed, those visions that were seen. Pour them out again, God. Pour them over us, over individuals, over friendships, over families, over marriages, over households. Release them again, God. Help us to actually go after them, not in our own strength. We can't do this. We're not good enough to do this. Father, help us to do this in our workplaces in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in this city, Father, help us to move to those places. And Jesus, I just want to pray really humbly and simply, provide Red's needs, not just what we need, but actually what you need for what you want to do through us. Release what we need to actually bring your good news to the people of this city, to to, to bring a message of hope, to help the hurting, to help people in other foreign lands, Father, help us to be a blessing to other places. Spirit, move amongst us, we pray. So what we're going to do now is we're going to ask the prayers to come forward. And they're just going to be on the side. 
And we're just going to step into a time here. I just have a real sense too that there's a sense that um, people need to step first into a place of gratitude, some people, and just remembering what God has done for us. So if you just want to even come and kneel as an act of worship, of gratitude, thank you for God for how He's blessed you, for what He's given you, for other people, how there's words have spoken over you, for gratitude. If you need to come forward to actually get in touch again with those Holy Spirit dreams and visions that were spoken over you, that God gave you, and you've missed them because you've got a stop sign in front of you, I encourage you to come forward that they may wash over you. If you want to come forward and actually say, God, I can't do it in my self-sufficiency, it's only your sufficiency now. Come forward. And, and if you want to have radical generosity unlocked in you, come and be prayed to be empowered to do that, to be led in how God wants you to do that. So let's just move forward. If you want to come and pray, if you want to be prayed for, let's step into that kingdom space of a radically generous God.